Welcome to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. I'm Richard Bliss, the host. You're listening to episode 181. And my guest today is someone who has been on the show before. Um, I call him the Cassandra of the uh, Kickstarter. No, actually, he calls himself that. Um, Michael Cassandra Mendez from Tasty Minstrel Games is my guest. Michael, thanks for being back on the show. Thanks, Richard. I appreciate it. We've known each other for a long time, and we've been doing this for a long time, this uh, Kickstarter thing. For those who are maybe new to the show and haven't heard past episodes that you have been on, um, how long have you been doing Kickstarter? First project, um, we uh, finished in November of 2010. It was Eminent Domain. It was a board game, uh, biggest board game success by a long shot, biggest success of yeah, it was huge. It was for huge. The time. For, the, for the time, it was one of the biggest on Kickstarter. Yeah, we raised like $46,000 or something like that. Yeah, in 2010. And I know that people today uh, just had a guest on who just raised $85,000 for their project. And it was like, yeah, hey, nice job. <laughs> right? And in the olden days, uh, that certainly would have set records. But yes, 2010, Eminent Domain, you were way out there. And, we, and that's why we were just talking – with some fun about this Cassandra comment, because you've been talking about Kickstarter to people who you know and the influence that you have for a very long time. And there's been significant changes in the last, what's it now? It's, I guess, three and a half years. It feels like forever. And in, in, there's internet time and then there's Kickstarter time. Yeah. And a lot of changes have happened. What are some of the bigger changes that you've seen happen? Um. I mean, the the size of campaigns and the number of campaigns is is significantly increased. That's uh, an obvious numerical truth. Uh, what I like to think about is what has changed as far as um, the psychology of the backer. Um, In what way? So, so when we did Eminent Domain, very few people had heard about Kickstarter. Um, Alien Frontiers had... Um, had previously funded other than that there were a handful of other games that had funded nothing too huge to speak of and at that point in time the psychology of the backer was like was pretty much what the heck is this i i don't, I don't understand almost an experimental uh, mode where kickstarter oh. yeah yeah so very much um you know uh early adopter type people Within the early adopter board game niche are the kind of people who backed uh, Eminent Domain. We've gone from that to a point where people understand it, but you know there aren't a lot of uh, defined concepts within how to run a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking when we did Kings of Aaron's Steam. And I don't know if it was the first... Um, Stretch goals, I called them overfunding achievements at the time. Stretch goals is much more easy. Um, we but, will have we will have to do some research because it, it came out of the board game space category. This concept of stretch goals. Speaking with Kickstarter themselves at that point, they'd never heard of these things called stretch goals. Okay, so if it came out of the board game space, then I possibly invented it. Probably. Uh, so, um, Kings of Aaron Steam is a game that is uh awesome we love it and we publish it but so we're maybe we're a little biased you can try it and find out for yourself but 
it's a game that had the potential to add different kinds of pieces that would be more attractive than what we would print them um, standardly. Uh, so like instead of wooden airships, you know, a wooden punch out of an airship that looks like a, a meeple for those who are familiar with um, board games, just a different shape. Uh, you know, we wanted to do molded plastic, but that's more expensive because of molds and all of that. So the concept is if we get backers enough money, enough upfront commitment, then we can afford to make the product better. And this seemed like a great idea to me. Well, it certainly has. It certainly has had a huge impact. That simple concept now is spread through every campaign, uh, no matter the category. You have had success with. Uh, I did a quick cursory look. I think ten right. ten projects, right? Richard, Richard, yeah. But at the time, it blew up in my face. Oh, people was did not like it. Oh, really? People said, basically. They basically accused me of holding back what I would make in order to get more money, as opposed to the idea that with the extra money and extra copies and larger print run, the cost per unit go down and we can actually afford to do these things. And so back to your earlier comment about the attitude or the um... – the psychology of the backer that there are much more. I, and I, I know this is true too. You can now look at a project. If you've been involved with Kickstarter, you can look at a project and know whether the creator kind of knows what they're doing. You can tell mm -hmm. by the pledge levels. You can tell by the rewards, the stretch goals, by the, the, um, the funding goal. You can tell all of these things by the delivery date. There's so much now of information that a backer comes informed with that they can quickly identify. But you're right. In the early days, I guess, Knowing the gamer community, they would have thought the worst. They tend to do that sometimes. No, no. They oh, don't. yeah, sometimes, sometimes they do. Sometimes they do. But, you know, whatever. But you've had some tremendous success. You have, like I was going to say, cursory, I think, 10 Kickstarter projects with success. And I'm not actually – I don't even know if I'm counting eminent domain because uh, that was not under your name. That no, was under was your – that was under Seth's name. And to a tune of about three quarters, of, three quarters of a million dollars. Yep. And so the conversation I wanted to have with you um, was this idea of building a sustainable business around the Kickstarter model. Crowdfunding is taking is now entering the lexicon of the general population, but it's but it's confusing about what that means because most people who are talking about crowdfunding where I live in Silicon Valley are talking about equity based crowdfunding. Oh, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And yep. Kickstarter, and I, I speak at these conferences. I spoke last year at the Silicon Valley uh, crowdfunding conference. I'll be speaking again on the one coming up in April. And I'm one of the few voices that talks about non-equity type funding, using that as a business model to build business without giving up equity. You've three-quarters of a million dollars of revenue over the last couple of years – not revenue, excuse me um, – uh, backers, Pledge, pledge, pledges – in addition to the revenue that the games themselves are generating, it would appear that you have successfully built a growing, sustainable business on the Kickstarter model without giving up equity. Yes, I believe I have. Um, some clarifications on, on you know, that number sounds a lot bigger than it ends up being, uh, partially because of my philosophy of, of how I, I go about things 
um, I price things very aggressively uh, to the benefit of the backer. Um, so that 750000 after you take out Kickstarter's cut and Amazon's cut and uh, people who can't manage to, to actually end up funding for one, you know, Right. Um, that happens. Getting charged for whatever reason, um, you know. So that works out to be instead of seven hundred fifty thousand, it works out to be seventy five thousand less than that. So six hundred seventy five thousand, and then all the, the cost co- to actually ship stuff to people of right. that six hundred seventy five probably was like three hundred, and the cost to manufacture was probably another two hundred fifty, and uh, you know what's left over is. To, to run to run a business is what's left yeah, over. So, yeah, so over a couple yeah, of years, so, and remember that's not you know one lump sum. That's over a couple of years, right? That but, means. But what I was going to say is that so it's transforming, and so now we're sitting here as we enter 2014. You've got you've got uh, two and a half, three years, three and a half years of experience behind you. And you're looking at 2014. Are you seeing the opportunity of accelerating or success? And what would be some of the keys of your success of continuing to use this Kickstarter model to now grow a legitimate business? Not that you weren't legitimate before, but I think under the context that we're talking about. Right. Um, one of the things about that is those 10 or 11 Kickstarter campaigns, I I have always, to my own detriment, taken a very long view of things. Uh, to and um, these eleven, ten or eleven projects are are basically the foundation of what now I find as can be a ongoing, legitimate, successful business where I'm the owner and you know the overseer of things as opposed to. Also being the guy who does everything, you know, where I can actually hire people to help me with things. So um, that's neither here nor there as far as an ingredient to success. But I, I have done that either to my detriment or my benefit. Now it's great um, for the past two or three years where I've been uh, working a full-time job and doing this and doing all this other stuff. It's been a pretty hectic um, so key ingredients to success, I think one was being willing and able to personally do that over such a long time frame. Uh, that is not something that you can teach. It's either if you're going to go out and do it, you can do it or you can't. Um, fortunately I, for me, I was able to, you were able to, and you were able to lay the groundwork um, I think to start to build the brand because some of the innovative things that you did with some of your projects, like pay pay what you want, right? Pay what you want. Here's the project. You pay what you want. Um, mm-hmm. What you did with coinage. Have you done that with another one? Uh, we've done that with three now already. Actually, Dungeon Roll Winter Promo Pack, which was a follow-on promotional item for Dungeon Roll, which was fairly successful. Um, uh, we did it for that. We did it for Templar Intrigue, which is a game I designed and was reluctant to do at all as a as a publisher. Um, but enough people expressed that they wanted it, so I put it out there, and I didn't put much effort into the actual Kickstarter project, and that performed surprising, you know, much better than I thought it would. 
uh, with a little, I have 3,000 or so backers and $17,000 worth of funding. Um, Are you finding that is what led into me delaying the uh, coinage project to put more effort into it to get it done right. And uh, coinage just uh, blew everything out of the water. So what you what you're doing I'm I'm interested to see cuz you you're doing you've got the Kickstarter model but then you're also still heavily involved with the distribution retail model as well. Mm-hmm. Um but some of these decisions you're making don't necessarily fit easily into the retail model. For example like coin, coinage. That's a, that would be coinage for those who are listening is a simple um, pretty straightforward game. The board fits in your wallet. Right, yep, it's one card. Just a single card. You can use coins. Um, it's a pretty simple, straightforward game. It's not the type of thing that you would normally see on the shelf at a retail store. No, and one of the key aspects. Uh, so these kind of games that are really small and have lots of interesting gameplay is something that I've wanted to do for a very long time because you can get a lot of gameplay value at a very small dollar amount that you need to charge a customer. And I've wanted to do these for a long time. The main issue is if you have a game that is one card and you provide some tokens so people can use them instead of coins, um, there's lots of problems in retail with that, just the size of the package and the potential shrinkage out of stores, which is um, retail code word for theft. Um, I think, you know, just stuff sure. getting lost, lost in air quotes. Um, it's, it's, it's just a bad product to go into a retail store. And if it's $5 in a retail store, that means I'm going to get like a dollar fifty out of the distribution channel that put it into that retail store, which means, um, you know, I'm back to a point where I can't pay a, a, a game designer much. And, um, you know, the the profit margin is is very low and artwork and everything that goes into it. So one of the things that got unlocked is interesting because there was multiple ideas that came together. And, you know, just a a handful of months ago for me that made me go, oh, yeah, I should use Kickstarter to fund these because it lets me define a print run size. It lets me know. Because one of the, if you're going to sell these things direct, one of the big questions is how many do I make? You know, if it, because if I make 25,000 copies of CoinAge, which is what we're going to do, versus 5,000 copies of CoinAge, my cost per unit to make them is significantly different by a lot. You know, um, you know, it might cost me half as much to make per unit 25,000 copies. But you've got to. But you do have to still make twenty five thousand copies. So even though the cost right. is half, the overall capital expenditure is still bigger. Right. And but Kickstarter allows me to define that amount up front. Um, so for Coinage, we have about eighteen thousand copies that are committed, eighteen and a half thousand that are committed to backers or um, deals that we made. Uh, or things that we might donate. And so if I make 25,000 copies, I have a sizable amount of inventory afterwards to sell. One of the big benefits with these tiny games, as opposed to 
a regular size board game is that the cost of inventory is so low. Like if I wanted to make a decent size, well, I did with Dungeon Roll. With Dungeon Roll, we had 15, about 15,000 copies committed and I made 40,000 games. So, you know, I, the extra cost of making a game that has a box and 17 dice and cards and um, uh, card, you know, punch boards with tokens and things like that is significant. So the capital expenditure is a lot more. Um, I don't know how I got on this. I probably stopped answering the question. Hopefully some people found that interesting. <laughs> um, no, but, but the key, one of the key elements is that I can have a large print run defined up front. And then if I just decide that we're not going to sell these in retail, then I can make the packaging and everything uh, optimized so that we can just, uh, you know, put a label on it and ship it out to someone when someone buys it or when we get them all in, we send it out to backers. It's a whole different idea. You know, I can put advertisements inside of the actual game that says, oh, yeah, by the way, if you like this game, it's available on our website and it's only $5, you know, so their friends know. And also, you might have missed some of our other games that are like this size if you're into that sort of thing. Um well, one of the things I have argued yeah. on the show is that Kickstarter is changing the value chain of almost every market it touches. Now, one of the reasons we cover the board game market so heavily on the show is because, as you've pointed out, as one of the very early adopters, the board game space has been pushing the limits and defining so much of, of how Kickstarter is being used. And and as we look, there's this there's this new value chain that's emerging that I think that you have uh, identified here. And that is the concept, which is why I had you on the show to talk exactly about what you were just talking about. And that is, is there a new way of looking at doing business in my market because of what Kickstarter allows me to do? And as you just identified, yeah, you now suddenly get to take out a lot of things that no longer are relevant or aren't necessary in order for you to have success with your product in your market, whether it's board games or whether it happens to be something else that you're using Kickstarter, <laughs> Kickstarter for. And so I think that, yes, no, it was very, I think our listeners will be very interested to hear kind of that take and that perspective, because that's what I want people to start thinking about is not how to use Kickstarter to do the way business, the way business has always been done, but to use Kickstarter to invent a new way of doing business. And I think that's what you just identified. We're about out of time. Oh, then maybe we can be on another show and I can talk about a hybrid business where you utilize the old methods and uh, some Kickstarter methods and allow them to complement each other. Okay. I, I'll which take... is what I would follow up with right now if we had time. Uh, well, then that's what we'll do. When we come back uh, on another episode, that's exactly what we'll talk about. Michael, thank you for being on the show. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. My guest has been Michael Mendez, the uh, owner, creator, CEO of Tasty Minstrel Games. He's got 10 projects out there that have had success um, with a whole lot of uh, presence and very well known in the board game space. Hopefully you've heard something inspiring. I know I always do, especially when I talk to Michael. We look forward to seeing your project out there. We can help you fund your dream. Thanks for listening. Take care.